19 years, Cronkite was the CBS evening news anchor man. And at the end of every broadcast, he would close his broadcast with these words. And that's the way it is. And if we were back in 57 AD, thereabouts, when the Apostle Paul was writing, what is the way it is? What what would the circumstances be like? And to be honest, it's not a particularly propitious time to be a follower of Jesus. The Christian church is growing, yes, but the Christian church has internal problems. You read the New Testament and there are problems of belief problems of practice. Uh, there was confusion over what the people of God ought to do and how the people of God ought to believe. There was also no shortage of opposition and difficulty, especially as the message began to cross cultural barriers. People were coming to faith, and they were coming to faith in a very hostile uh, environment. In many ways, the Roman Empire was was enlightened in that As new places and peoples were conquered, the Roman conquerors would allow those people to keep their gods and to keep their religion. Unfortunately, two particular faith traditions were difficult. One of them was Judaism, their insistence that there is but one God, and then Christianity in a very similar vein. The Roman Empire didn't know how to deal with these kind of approaches that didn't allow for that flexible, all-inclusive policy. So it's a difficult time to be a follower of Jesus in 7 AD. And yet, on the positive side, what's encouraging is that within just a few decades of the events of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, there's now a community of believers in Rome, at the very center of the Roman Empire. You've heard the proverbial saying that all roads lead to Rome, So it's maybe not surprising that the gospel found its way to the center of the empire. But it's quite encouraging because there all roads lead from Rome. So that once the gospel is established centrally, the impact of the gospel is wide ranging. Wherever those roads lead, the gospel will go with those travelers. One of my responsibilities in, in, in Edinburgh, I'm involved in the Free Church's Mission Board. It's a, we have a responsibility of overseeing work in Scotland, in the UK. Uh, we have input into different works on the continent of Europe and throughout the globe. And we have the privilege of hearing from a representative from Speed City. It's a church planting network, uh, begun by Redeemer Presbyterian Church in, in New York. But city-to-city Europe has identified five alpha cities, the five most important cities in Europe, politically, culturally, financially, uh, the five cities where a church planting network is critical. Well, I can leave you to guess the other four, but you're in one of them. London is one of the key cities in Europe. That's not a surprising statement. But it's when something is happening in London, There's no telling the impact of that movement, both for the city and for the rest of Europe and for the rest of the world, such as our intercommunication, our interconnection today. So the fact that there was a community of believers in Rome augured well for the preservation and the expansion of the gospel in the Roman Empire. 
the fact that there are vibrant churches and growing networks of church planting networks in London augurs well for the United Kingdom, for the continent of Europe. And we need to be encouraged today. I began with the the more negative side of the equation, that there are challenges, and there are. It's not easy being a Christian in the 21st century, but it wasn't easy in the first century either. But we are not alone. We are not reliant upon our resources. And I hope as we look at this passage together, we will see much that will both encourage us, strengthen us, and equip us for the task that lies ahead. Now, Harrison introduced me. I I teach uh, I teach theology. I teach practical theology. For those of you with a long memory, one of your former ministers, John Nichols, has been a great encouragement to me personally, and he shared his wisdom with our students. And I remember him giving an opening lecture, and he said, all theology must be practical, and all practice must be theological. So these, these two disciplines go together, what we, do, what we believe and how we live. And if we understand our faith aright, we have the foundation for a life that is dedicated and focused and committed to Christ and of great practical benefit to the communities in which God has placed us, to the world in which God has sent us. So many theologians are good at writing books, big books. You know, John Owen's multi-volume commentary on the book of Hebrews. Uh, if you come to ETS, you can see the works of Martin Luther, the works of John Calvin, and, and they take up many shelves. But this evening, I'd like to give you nine words, I think, that help us understand our Christian faith. Nine or three of them are in our passage today, and I'll just share the other six just for completeness. So we have in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? Paul is a great communicator, and he uses rhetorical devices, rhetorical questions. And he goes on to say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, his his premise here is not the question, is God for us? Because he knows that God is for us. And therefore, the answer, of course, then, or the conclusion is that no one can be against us. But those nine words that can helpfully sum up our Christian theology, three of them are here. God for us. Uh, John Wesley, one of my one of my friends, um, as a historian, you make friends with people in the past. I'm maybe not as good as making friends with people in the present. John Wesley's one of my friends from the past. And if you remember the plaque outside your church in London, you'll be reminded that very near the site of the Aldersgate Church was where his heart was strangely warmed. And I find Wesley's comments very helpful because he says, if any doctrines within the whole compass of Christianity may be properly termed fundamental, They are doubtless these two, the doctrine of justification and that of the new birth, the former relating to that great work which God does for us in forgiving our sins, and the latter to the great work which God does in us in renewing our fallen nature. So Paul gives us three words here, God for us. John Wesley reminds us of three further words, God in us. And if you want to round out the nine words, 
you go to John chapter 1 and verse 14, and we're told of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, God with us. God with us, Jesus has come down to our level. God for us, the Lord Jesus died on the cross. God in us, the Holy Spirit dwelling within the people of God. Put those nine words together and you have the foundations for our Christian faith. So if you are a Christian tonight, I don't know all of you, but if you are a follower of Jesus, these nine words, these three propositional statements are true for each one of you, for each one of us. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, let me just say that these are the terms and conditions. This is what God is offering to you. That God is with you, that God is for you, that God can be in you, and that all that is needed, he provides. So with those nine words in your mind, Paul begins with these rhetorical questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he goes on to say, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, Paul rhetorical, skilled rhetorician. Paul is not liable to make the errors that we often make in logic. One of the classes that I'm teaching, I'm teaching an elective in communication, and there's a lot of rhetorical or logical fallacies that people make. One of the most obvious ones is arguing from small to big. You know that, so for example, um, I could say to you, I can swim two lengths in a swimming pool. Okay, that's a statement I can do. I haven't done it in a long time, but I could do it. But if I would say, since I can swim two lengths in a pool, I could swim the channel. Same thing. Just a little bit longer, but I could do it. You know, that's a pretty bad use of logic. If you can do something small, you can do something big. But the opposite, however, is quite an effective use of logic, because if you can do something big, It's not difficult to do something that's smaller. So if I were to say to you, I have swam the channel, I haven't, then I could clearly swim two lengths in a pool. You would say, well, okay, I'll accept that. If you can swim from France to England or England to France, then surely you can swim up and back in a swimming pool. But what Paul is doing here is he's saying, here's the biggest thing that God can do, and he's already done it. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. The greatest possible gift, the greatest possible provision has already been given. So if we're trying to establish the terms of reference, God for us, God has given us his son. And then Paul, you know, in in the ESV, which I'm reading, comma, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he's given us the best, If he's given us the greatest, if he's given us that which is most valuable, Paul says, will he not give anything else that you require, anything else that you need? If he's given you the greatest, he'll certainly make sure that anything else that is required will be provided. And as we work our way through this passage, I'd like you to notice three questions which remind us that Paul has a has a legally trained mind. And Paul's illustrations often bring us to the courtroom, not always, 
Sometimes he brings us to the marketplace and sometimes he brings us to the realm of human relationships. Sometimes he brings us into family situations. But here very much he's bringing us into a courtroom. Now, I know Scotland has a different legal system, but roughly speaking, there are three stages to a legal process. There's some sort of accusation. There's a charge that's leveled. You did this. And then that begins a legal process. So a charge is made, and then a case occurs. And after that case is heard, either a sheriff or a judge or a jury will come to some kind of verdict. And depending on the verdict, the innocent person obviously goes free. The guilty person will then be punished in some way. And if you think of that framework, accusation, verdict, and the negative, a, a, a condemnation, and then some form of punishment, you see the three questions that Paul brings out here. Remind yourself that the audience here is not powerful. They are not numerically strong. They are not financially strong. They do not have much within themselves. They are very much at the, uh, <laughs> they are very much at risk, very vulnerable. So you begin with the first question in verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's the beginning of a legal process of charge. Notice how Paul answers that charge. Because if we're honest, and if I hope as Christians we are honest, that there is much that could be said against us, much that could be said against our words, our actions, our thoughts, much that could be said against those things that we actually do, and much that could be said against those things that we should do but leave undone. But notice how he answers that first question. It is God who justifies. That brings us back to that quotation from our friend John Wesley. This great work which God does for us in forgiving our sins. This great legal statement that you and I, if we are followers of Jesus, that we are now declared to be right, declared to be righteous, declared to be accepted in God's sight because of the work of another. Today in the Christian calendar is Palm Sunday. This commences the seven days of Holy Week, concluding on the Friday with crucifixion and the following Sunday, Easter Sunday with resurrection. And there on the cross, the Lord Jesus enables you and I to be declared righteous. The sinless one becomes sin. So the sinners can become righteous. So the first element of the legal case is the charge. And Paul says there's no charge. No charge stands against the people of God. But by distinction, by contrast, for those who are not yet Christians, there are many charges that can be made and can be substantiated. What you've done, what you haven't done, because the justifying work of Jesus is of only, uh, is only effectual to those who have placed their trust in him, to those who have committed their case to him. You know, again, if you're thinking of a a legal setting, the Lord Jesus is our advocate. He's one that has taken on our case, and he's one who's speaking to the Father on our behalf. The second question, remember the charge, and then there comes a verdict. 
verse 34, who is to condemn? So the, the jury comes back and the verdict is guilty. Or is it? The Apostle Paul answers this question again with Jesus. I know this might seem like a, a Sunday school dialogue, you know, where, where you ask the children a question and they know that the answer is Jesus, but actually the answer is Jesus. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who is indeed interceding for us. So there, is there a charge that can stand? No. Why? Because God justifies. Is there condemnation that is possible? Absolutely not. The Lord Jesus, he died. More than that, he was raised. So he died for our sins. He rose triumphant from the grave. Sin victorious over death, victorious over evil. And not only raised, but he's at the right hand of God. Which means you and I have a friend in a very high place. The right hand is the place of ultimate power, the ultimate authority, and that's where the Lord Jesus is seated. But is he active or inactive? Oh, he's active, all right. We're told that he's interceding for us. He's praying. Now, one element of the Christian life, of course, is prayer. We read the Bible, we pray, we go to church, we enjoy fellowship. You know, you you understand the picture of the Christian life. But if I'm honest, and if you're honest, our prayer life is often inconsistent. But the good news here is that his prayer life is completely consistent. That he's constantly interceding on behalf of his people. He is placing himself in between. He is He's in between us and God. He is our mediator. He's the one who reconciles. He's the one who brings us back to God. And he's there at that place of ultimate power and ultimate authority. So there's no charge. There's no possibility of condemnation. And just to finish the the process, Paul goes on to talk about separation. Again, in in a legal case, if you are charged, if you're found guilty, there's some punishment. It might be a fine. That means that you're separated from some of your money. There might be imprisonment. Uh, Harrison mentioned that I'm a prison chaplain. There are 900 people serving sentences of varying lengths in Edinburgh prison. In that regard, you're separated from your family. You're separated from your liberty. If it's a capital charge, you could be separated from life if you're found, if you're charged and found guilty. So Paul rounds out the picture and he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, he's kind of giving a hint there, even in the question. This love that Jesus has is a powerful love, is a persistent love, is a consistent love. It's the kind of love that never lets you go. Now, when I was studying now many years ago, I remember the many things I've forgotten. But one of the I love words and I love new words. And our professor of uh, Old Testament taught us this word, merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. And in the context, he was saying, when the Bible talks about heavens, heavens and earth, that's another way of saying everything. Because either it's in the heavens or it's on earth. It's two words that mean every, you know, put them together, it means everything. We've got an example of that here. 
because Paul begins this list with tribulation and distress. If you think of it this way, tribulation is anything that happens outside of yourself. Hassle, conflict, uh, persecution, opposition, ridicule, mocking, whatever it might be. That's tribulation. That's a trouble that's outside. Whereas distress is trouble that's inside. Anxiety, fear, uh, uncertainty, uh, just that, that, that sense of, of foreboding. And so, therefore, if you put these two words together as a merism, Paul is essentially saying everything. You know, everything that's outside of yourself, everything that's inside of yourself. He's asking the question, can anything at all, internal or external, separate you, separate me from the love of Christ? And he goes on, he says, well, if that wasn't enough, let's mention persecution. If the letter to the Romans was written in 57 AD, the, the persecution under Nero was not yet happening, but was soon to happen. Seven years hence, the great fire of Rome, the great persecution of Christians. So for Christians in the first century, and for many of God's people in the 21st century, persecution is not an idea, it's a reality. Persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. And this list is a list of either those things that you have that you wish you didn't, persecution being one, or those things that you don't have and you wish you did. You don't have clothes. You wish you had clothes. You don't have enough food. You wish you had food. And what Paul is doing is he said, let me just give you the whole range of things here. And let me just suggest, can tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, naked, danger, or sword, can those things individually or collectively? separate you, separate me, separate us from the love of Christ. Because you think, that's quite a list, quite a list individually, quite a list together. And then Paul goes on to quote Psalm 44. And Psalm 44 is one of those catastrophe psalms. You know, a a catastrophic, cataclysmic event has befallen the people of God. A great military victory was not theirs. It was a defeat rather than a victory. And the people are reflecting upon their circumstance and their situation. And if we're honest, sometimes it feels as if each day, all day, things are bad, things are getting worse, and the prospect of improvement seems absent. And as you read Psalm 44, it's not the, you know, uplifting, bright, and breezy psalm, but it's a realistic portrayal of suffering, of defeat, of distress. And Paul says, no. In the first two questions, he doesn't answer them specifically. But in this question, he gives you the answer. Who shall separate us? Shall any of these things separate us? No. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So as followers of Jesus, we have the love of Jesus. God is for us. God is in us. God is with us. And this love of Christ is powerful. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. These are great foes, great opponents. But the Apostle Paul says, no, the love of Jesus. Now, the image that he uses here, uh, let me take you back to the first century. When the Romans had a great military victory, they would declare a triumph. 
And the triumph, the Roman triumph was a parade, a celebration that would wind its way through the streets of Rome to celebrate this great victory. And, and the and the composition of the parade was quite set. You would begin with the prisoners of war, those that were captured, those that were vanquished. You would then have the spoils of war, the treasure that was seized from the enemy. You would then have the, the, the soldiers, the victorious soldiers, the officers, and then the politicians. They didn't want to miss out, so you'd have the Roman senators. They would be part of this great Roman triumph, this great procession. But then at the end of this parade, and sometimes the parade could last for days, going through the whole of the city, but everyone wanted to see the, the person who was at the end of the triumph, because that was the conqueror. That was the conquering general. That was maybe even the emperor himself. So when Paul is speaking of a conqueror, the Roman Christians know exactly what he's speaking about. But the remarkable thing that Paul is saying to them and to us is that this image is inadequate to describe who we are. It's an inadequate picture to describe who we are in Christ. And you think, the Roman Christians would be accustomed to such a, a a spectacle. But if they were involved in it, they would most likely be at the front of the triumph, being one of the prisoners of war, being one of the slaves that was being paraded through the city as a spoil of war. They would never associate themselves with the conqueror. And Paul says, you're more than that. You're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And And if we miss that point, He concludes by, again, bringing together everything, everywhere, at all times. For I am sure that death nor life, neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. No one. Nothing in the future, nothing today, nothing spiritual, nothing physical, uh, you name it. The Apostle Paul says that you and I have a security, but our security is based not on ourselves, not on how much we know, how much we understand, not based upon performance, how well we do, but our security is based on our identity. And our identity is based on Jesus. If you're not a Christian tonight, what is true here is not true, sadly, for you yet. Because these promises are not given to anyone and everyone. But these promises are given to those who are in Christ. Those who have received or appropriated, those who have laid hold of Jesus. And therefore, have a claim to this love, this commitment. This security. So our identity is found in Christ. And with that identity, we have a firm foundation. This is our security. No accusation. No condemnation. No separation. More than conquerors through him who loved us. And I would suggest that most Christians don't think this way. Most of us don't feel like this. Now, what you think and what you feel is important. God's given you a mind. He wants you to use it. God's given you a heart. He wants you to use it. He's given you thoughts. He's given you emotions. But 
when we have a choice between what we think and what we feel and what God says, as, as a teacher, as a pastor, I would always encourage you to take what God says and set aside what you might feel or think at any moment, if there is a conflict between the two. Because what God says is always true. And what God says is always right. So God indeed is with us. God indeed is for us. And God indeed is in us. And whether you're a Christian in first century Rome or 21st century London, the challenges and the opposition may be obvious, may be many. The internal challenges may be great. The external challenges may be difficult. But the love of Jesus Christ The love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, is powerful and persistent. I was this in class the other day. We often think of assurance as the strength of our commitment to God. Whereas primarily in the Bible, the foundation of our assurance is the strength of his commitment to us. He doesn't let us go. He doesn't let us down. He will not lose hold of us. He struggle to lose hold of him. He will keep us. He will protect us. And he will preserve us. So for us tonight, as Christians, Paul says, you are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are safe. We are secure now and forever because of the one we have trusted in, because of the one who has justified us, because of the one who died, who rose, who is at the right hand, and is even now praying for us. So may God bless his word to our hearts. May he encourage our souls, and may he equip us for whatever lies ahead tomorrow. And may you remind yourself, or may God remind you of who you are in Christ, of whose you are, and therefore all these privileges are yours in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for its truth. We thank you for its power and for its clarity. We thank you that so often what we think is different. What we feel is different. So often our experiences lead us to conclude the exact opposite of what you say. We let ourselves down. We are often let down by others. We find the going difficult. We find situations that go from bad to worse to worse again. And we somehow then conclude that you are not there or you are not for us or you are not with us. But we thank your word constantly reminds us of your truth, of your strength, of your wisdom, of your power and of your love. And I thank you, Lord, for each one of us whose faith is in Christ, that no accusation can be made. No condemnation will occur and no separation is possible. Nothing No one at no time will be able to take us away from you, will be able to take us away from Jesus. So remind us that it's not so much how strong our faith is, but how strong the object of our faith is. We thank you that we have a strong Savior. We thank you that we have a powerful gospel. And we thank you that what we ourselves have received and what we ourselves have enjoyed is something that we can therefore share with others, that parents can pass this great truth on to their children, that friends can pass this great truth on to one another, that we can share what we have received. And Lord, we pray that we would share the love of Jesus in word, share the love of Jesus in action, 
that we would point people not to ourselves, but to the one who has saved us, who has set us free, who has justified us in your sight, and who provides us this safety, this security, and this confidence. Lord, I thank you for each one of us gathered together tonight. There will be some who are carrying very heavy burdens. Some of those burdens are known. Many of those burdens are unknown. Nothing is unknown to you. We thank you that you are good, gracious, and kind. So bless us, we pray, as we ask in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.